Welcome to Policy, Guns and Money, the ASPE podcast. I'm Lisa Sharland, the head of the international program here at ASPE. I've taken over the microphone to introduce you to this week's episode, our Africa Day special. This Monday, the 25th of May, is Africa Day, a day that marks the founding of the Organisation of African Unity in 1963, which was to be the precursor to today's African Union. It is generally a day of celebration across the African continent and around the world. However, those celebrations are likely to take a different form this year due to COVID-19. Australia's engagement with Africa generally doesn't feature regularly in our discussions about security, diplomatic and trade interests. In this special episode, we examine several different aspects of Australia's relationship with countries on the continent. Brendan Nicholson, Executive Editor of The Strategist, talked to Claire Island, Australia's High Commissioner to Nigeria, about Australia's bilateral interests between Nigeria and Australia. I spoke with Santilla Chingepe, journalist and filmmaker, about the African diaspora in Australia. But first, ASPE's Executive Director Peter Jennings had a chat with Isaiah Kabira, Kenya's High Commissioner to Australia, about the significance of Africa Day and Africa's progress since the establishment of the Organisation of Africa Unity in 1963. Well, hello everyone. Welcome to Policy, Guns and Money, the ASPE podcast. I'm Peter Jennings, Executive Director of ASPE. And our podcast today is celebrating Africa Day. Africa Day is the annual commemoration of the founding of the Organisation of African Unity, now known as the African Union, which happened actually not far from my birthday, the 25th of May 1963. Um, Africa Day is celebrated in various countries on the African continent as well as around the world. And I'm going to be talking today to Isaiah Kabira, High Commissioner for Kenya. Uh, Kenya is the second largest economy in East Africa. It's got positive economic growth and that's expected to continue through the medium term with recent discoveries of oil, gas and minerals. Nairobi, the capital, is one of the fastest growing cities in Africa and it's home to over 3.8 million people of an an estimated 50 million Kenyans across the country. Nairobi Nairobi is also a major hub for uh, the United Nations Uh, for multilateral organisations and diplomatic missions. Now, in terms of the Australia-Kenya relationship, in 2015, Australia and Kenya celebrated 50 years of bilateral relations. Our two countries have strong ties, evident through collaboration on agriculture and food security, counterterrorism and piracy, mining, exploration and education. So welcome to Policy, Guns and Money, Isaiah. It's great to be talking to you. Thank you, Peter, and uh, happy Africa Day. Thank you, thank you. Um, What does Africa Day mean to you? Well, you know, Africa Day is the day we celebrate uh, the inauguration of the Organization of African Unity in uh, May 25th, 1963. Africa Day is a day when we reflect uh, on the aspirations and the vision of the founding fathers of our uh, various nations. Uh, we remember uh, the fight and we honor them uh, um, for the responsibilities and uh, the hard work and sacrifices that they made to ensure that Africa gets independence. So on this day, uh, it's an occasion to ask ourselves, have we lived up to the aspirations, to the vision of our founding fathers? It's also a time not uh, to just uh, look at the political freedom that uh, we won as, our, as countries. Uh, but also ask ourselves, are we on the, the right economic development path? What progress are we making on the, on the social front? So th- this is a great opportunity for, for us to reflect on the past and uh, uh, to see where we, do we go from here. And uh, the African Union has now established the vision 2063 um, on, on, on some uh, parameters that Africa should have achieved uh, when we celebrate 100 years of the African uh, Organization Unity in 1963. And of course, 1963 was the year of Kenyan independence as well. Uh, am I right, is I? Yes, that's the uh, 12th December 1963. Oh, a very significant year. As I also said, the year I was born, so I feel some connections uh, here. Um, sadly, <laughs> yeah. of course, Africa Day uh, 2020 has been hit by the COVID-19 virus, so I guess it's going to be marked um, through a lot of virtual um, um, events rather than uh, getting together, which is uh, really unfortunate. 
Isaiah, can you can you tell us what what's happening in Kenya uh, right now, and what's happening in Africa more broadly with the coronavirus? Well, uh, Peter, as you rightfully said, definitely uh, the celebration this year will be more muted because of the challenge of uh, COVID-19. Uh, Africa has been lucky so far that uh, the infection rates have not been as high as uh, uh, in other parts of, of the world. Mm. Uh, for example, in Kenya, we have we've only had about 800 infections and uh, just about 35 uh, deaths. Mm. Uh, I think the closure of the, the early closure of borders in Africa really contributed uh, in a big way in trying to, to limit the spread of the, the disease. Uh, but of course, it's a touch wood. Uh, we are still continuing to take uh, steps. It's been very devastating. Uh, uh, it is predicted that uh, the average growth rate of about 7% in Af around Africa will uh, go down to about 2%. Mm. Uh, some countries are actually uh, predicting uh, uh, minus uh, growth uh, during this uh, year. So it's taken a very a big hit. As you know, most of our nations, we are trading nations. Our people go out to the markets and uh, uh, sell their, their their goods. And so it's been a, quite a big struggle for the people. But it's also, also been a wake-up call uh, that we need to invest more in our health sectors. Uh, for example, in central Kenya, we've seen hospitals being built uh, in less than a month, a project that would take uh, up to one, two years. Uh, but because of the urgency, uh, it's definitely ensured that uh, we are taking uh, the rightful uh, steps to invest more in health and, and education. Of course, most schools are, are currently uh, closed, uh, which is a big challenge. Uh, kids staying home, uh, doing offline, um, uh, on online studies. Again, of course, that's a big challenge because not everyone is um, uh, very connected, although our, our, our internet connectivity around Africa, and especially in a country like Kenya, is, is, is fairly good. So it's a big challenge, uh, but we, we are surprised to see uh, some commentators on, on, on news channels ask, asking and wondering, why is Africa not recording high rates of infection? Uh, uh, really, it's, it's unfortunate, and it's an unfortunate debate. We've been here before. Um, Africa has had the challenge of Ebola. We never wished it upon anyone else. Mm -hmm. So I think uh, uh, we, we are happy with the steps that most governments have taken, uh, but we've not flattened the curve yet. Uh, so we need to continue taking the precautions uh, necessary. Yes, well, let's hope it stays that way. It's been very noticeable that the uh, rates of infection seem to be significantly lower and slower than we've seen in some countries around the world. Uh, but you're very right to point to the fact that after the health crisis comes the uh, the economic crisis. Uh, and of course, those low growth rates that you mentioned ultimately translate into millions of people um, around the world um, and in Africa being pushed further into poverty. Um, I, I think that the economic consequences of the virus are going to be with us for years. That's true, uh, no, definitely. But also been a wake-up call that... Um we cannot be fully uh, uh, reliant on the international uh, global supply chain. Yeah. Uh, I think it's a wake-up call that we need to be more inward-looking and not be nationalistic, really, uh, but we need to invest uh, in capacity, uh, being able to produce our own goods and services. For example, we have an industry uh, in the eastern part of Kenya where uh, they used to produce uniforms for, for our uh, armed uh, forces. Mm -hmm. But overnight, transformed into a factory that makes um, uh, face masks. Yep. Uh, we are seeing a lot of our medical institutions also uh, taking part uh, in the research towards getting a vaccine. Uh, we have something called the Kenya Medical Research Institute that is at the forefront of this, um, and we hope that uh, we can play our part uh, to help the world uh, get a vaccine as soon as possible. Well, I think Africa and, and uh, Kenyan, Kenyans are, are known to, to be people that are on, entrepreneurially minded and, and look for uh, creative business opportunities. And um, I think we're seeing a little bit of that in Australia at the moment as well, uh, with the realisation that we have to be able to do more for ourselves. And um, just in time, supply uh, uh, cannot always be relied on, uh, particularly in moments of crisis. So um, we have to hope that out of the... Um, uh, the virus uh, emerges uh, some silver linings, I say, some some opportunities for creativity and for closer collaboration. Yes, definitely. And uh, we're going to see more intra-Africa trade. 
because uh, the challenge that we've had in Africa is that we have not traded enough uh, between ourselves. You, you find that um, Kenya produces its coffee and tea, uh, but they find their way to Europe, uh, and then they export it to the western part of Africa. Uh, why can't we do more more direct uh, trade within um, uh, ourselves? So I think we're going to see not rising nationalism, really, but more inward-looking um, approaches towards the way uh, we do issues. But we've also uh, realized that there's so much that uh, home, home, homeschooling, home work from the house was a foreign word to, to a lot of people in Africa. Uh, but I think we, we've seen that the investment we've made in, uh, in, uh, in, in internet, internet connectivity uh, has really paid off. And uh, we're going to see a lot of change in the way people work in the years to come. Yes, yes. Let's talk about the bilateral relationship. Um, can you describe for me, starting with Kenya, and then we can talk about um, Africa more broadly, but what, what is the, the uh, type of engagement between Australia and Kenya right now? Uh, on, on good years, Peter, we, we've had up to 30,000 Australians visit uh, uh, Kenya as tourists. So tourism is one of our big uh, 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 achievements. Uh, we, we hope to see uh, that once the international airspace is open, then um, uh, we'll see people resume this. We, we still remain uh, on the bucket list of very many Australians, and we appreciate um, them for the interest they've taken in our country. Uh, Kenya is currently the biggest uh, exporter of cut flowers into the Australian market. Uh, uh, so we are, we are happy. Uh, but again, that has severely been affected because of the lack of, of, uh, of, of flights uh, from Africa to, to Australia. We hope that this will resume uh, uh, in, in time. Uh, we, we also have the biggest investor in uh, Kenya's mining uh, uh, sector. It's actually an Australian company. It's a $500 million investment in the coastal part of, uh, of Kenya. So we're happy with that. We are, we are also happy that um, Kenya sends a lot of uh, students uh, uh, here. Uh, currently, we have about 4,000 to 5,000 uh, Kenyan students uh, studying uh, here in Australia. Yeah. We also have a large uh, diaspora. Um, uh, there are about 21,000 uh, 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 people who trace their heritage to back to Kenya uh, and we are proud about the contribution they are making yes they are to be found uh, working in our uh, uh, in, in, the, in the health sector here especially the nurses uh, we have some of them as teachers we have a lot of them working in the mining sector so we're very proud of this uh, we also have now more coffee, more Kenyan coffee and tea they're finding its way here uh, into Australia in the past this trade was done through Europe so we'd uh, just like the African uh, uh, case, we would have Kenyan coffee and tea goes to Europe and then uh, comes down to, to, to Australia. But that's what we're trying to, to have more direct linkages. But at the end of the day, it's going to be about uh, connectivity. Uh, uh, the more direct flights you're going to have between uh, Australia and, and Africa, the more we can trade, the more people can, can travel more easily instead of going through the Middle East or uh, uh, Europe. So we are, we are happy about the relations that we have. Uh, uh, with Australia over the years. Australia just opened um, uh, an ultra-modern uh, chancery in Nairobi. Uh, that signifies that uh, Australia is taking a long-term view uh, to its relations uh, in Kenya. We are, we are happy um, about that, and we continue to engage uh, the government here in, in, in Canberra. It's, it's a good relationship, Isaiah, and I think, I think a lot of Australians, particularly on the East Coast, would be astonished to understand the, the depth of Australian mining industry interests, um, not only in Kenya, but in, in many uh, Central and Southern African countries. Um, in, in some ways, uh, it seems to me that uh, West Australia thinks about um, our relations with Africa m much more intelligently than um, the East Coast does. Uh, I don't know if you've experienced that in your time here as, uh, as High Commissioner, but the, the mining sector in particular is very significant. Yes, uh, we, we have uh, uh, 200 companies, uh, Australian companies, who have invested in uh, 700 projects uh, around Africa. Uh, the level of investment is uh, forty billion dollars. That is not a small amount by any. Yeah, my goodness. Yeah, and and you'll find just like Kenya, where the biggest uh, investor is from Australia. Even in a lot of African countries, you'll always find that the biggest investor. You go deep into uh, the DRC, the Democratic Republic of Congo. You you'll you'll find Australian companies uh, busy uh, 
Yeah. And as you said, yes, uh, West, West, Western Australia has taken a more favorable outlook towards uh, uh, Africa. Uh, but I guess our work is to also interest the eastern part of uh, Australia to take a keener interest uh, in Africa. Yes, well, we're on a joint ticket for that, uh, Isaira. I've been attempting to do that for quite a while here at ASPE, but it's it's a bit uphill because the, there's a tendency for Australia to tend to think north uh, as far as its uh, foreign policy is concerned, much less so west. And I, I just hope in time that that's uh, going to self-correct as, as Africa grows and becomes more more globally significant. Yes. What about Australia's position in Africa more generally? Um, I mean, uh, you, you're a diplomat. You, you probably need to be careful about uh, some of the things that you might want to say. But uh, uh, how, how do you think Australia is perceived? And um, you, you know, what, what should Australia be doing to position itself more effectively um, uh, in its relations with African countries? I think there's, there's been a, a very proactive uh, attempt by the Australian government to reach out uh, to Africa. Uh, as you know now, we have what we call the Australia-Africa Week uh, uh, that is held in Perth. It's a seven-day event where we not just discuss mining, we discuss issues about uh, education, research, uh, uh, and, and, and all the other facets of, of, of uh, uh, engagement. So. We, we, we know, I mean, uh, we don't shy to say, we, we know Australia has a very Pacific uh, lean in uh, foreign policy. And I, I guess our work is to continually remind them that uh, Africa here, we exist. Uh, I think the government knows that this $40 billion investments, uh, for example, in the mining sector, is a strong indication that uh, 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 Australia has a keen interest on what is happening. Uh, in Africa, if, if there are any challenges in Africa or any opportunities, uh, it is for, for for the government to be on the lookout of that. The total trade between Australia and Africa now stands at about uh, twelve billion dollars. Uh, 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 may not look significant compared to your big trading partners, but there's lots of opportunity for growth, and uh, that's why we are working uh, closely with the with the government of Australia to see. How more can we enhance um, uh, these relations? Uh, we have 16 African countries currently represented uh, here in Canberra uh, with the diplomatic uh, missions. Uh, Australia recently added an extra uh, uh, embassy in uh, Morocco. Uh, so that, that indicates that they're also taking a, a keen interest on what is happening in Africa. Because, uh, Peter, really, anyone who is thinking about the future should be thinking about Africa. In 2050, uh, Africa will be a country, a continent with a population of um, uh, uh, 2.2 billion people. Out of that, a billion will be in the middle class. Uh, I mean, that start for any businessman should be an appetizer to know that uh, something is happening. Just as we've had the Asian century, I am confident that uh, Africa's uh, time is coming. And uh, I spoke earlier about the issue of political independence uh, that happened, that we celebrate Africa Day. Now, as Kwame Nkrumah, the former president of Ghana, he said, seek ye first the political kingdom, and all others shall be added unto you. But he has been a bit slow. That is why our leaders have established the Africa Continental Free Trade uh, Agreement uh, that will be an economic block. Uh, because we are now trying to consolidate. We have a trading block, uh, Comesa. Uh, uh, we have SADC in, south, in, in southern part. And, of course, uh, the, the ECOWAS up in, uh, in uh, West Africa. So we're trying to amalgamate all this uh, and ask ourselves, what is it that we must do to ensure that there's closer economic uh, cooperation between our, our, our countries? This agreement has, is, is going to be coming into force uh, this year. Uh, after the signing of uh, a majority of uh, African governments. We are really excited about that. It's not going to be a walk in the park to get 50 countries to agree on the nitty-gritties of uh, tax, intra-Africa trade, what 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 uh, tax rebates can you give to people within Africa. So, uh, But we are confident that uh, this is the right uh, approach. Well, I say thank you. I think that's a great positive note to end on, uh, and I agree with you. I think if, if people aren't thinking about the strategic future of Africa and the potential that Africa presents for the rest of the world, um, that they're really not thinking very strategically at all. There's, um, uh, you know, 2 billion consumers uh, in 2050 
that probably don't yet realise what desperate need they have for Australian barley and Australian beef and all of the other products that we will be able yeah, to sure. provide. So thank you very much um, uh, for taking time to uh, talking uh, to us today, Isaiah, and uh, a very happy Africa Week to you. I hope uh, Africa Day. I hope uh, maybe next year we'll be able to meet face-to-face -face and um, update uh, on the relationship in, in a year's time. Thank you very much, Peter. Thank you for the opportunity to talk about my country, Kenya, and to talk about Africa, and uh, happy Africa Day. And continue the good job you're doing at the SBI. Thanks very much indeed. Good talking to you, Isaiah. Next, Brendan Nicholson speaks to Claire Island, Australia's High Commissioner to Nigeria, about the potential of Australia's bilateral relationship with Nigeria and shared interests between the two countries. They also discuss the evolution of Australia's relationship with Africa and what opportunities exist for future engagement. Anyway, good morning, Claire. Now, you've good had morning. a fascinating career in a range of countries in Africa, the Middle East, Asia and the Pacific. And now you're a High Commissioner to Nigeria and also accredited to Niger, Cameroon, Benin, Gabon, the Gambia, and also to the 15-member economic community of West African states. Are you able to give us a perspective on Australia's engagement with what really is a, a massive region and a very diverse yeah, well, No, it is. It is. And thank you very much for that sort of kind introduction. I've been very privileged in my, in my career to have that kind of span of breadth across, you know, Africa, Asia, Middle East and Pacific. So it's nice to be sort of back now in Africa. And I think, I mean, in answer to your question in terms of um, Australia's engagement with the region, it is a huge region. I think it's important not to forget it's been a, a long um, history and it's one that's um, it's, it's evolved and it's kind of matured over the time. When I did a bit of background research, you know, Australia's first mission, diplomatic mission, was in South Africa in 1946. So, I mean, it has been a long time that that engagement has been happening. And certainly here in Nigeria, where I'm based, we had our first diplomatic representation in 1960, just before independence. And as soon as independence happened in 1960, we turned that into a popular diplomatic mission and had a high commission here. So the engagement has been a very sort of long one in the region. And it's definitely evolved and changed. I think... You know, like you said, it's a massive area. We don't have diplomatic missions in every single country. I mean, it wouldn't be physically possible to do that, although the Americans and the British do. But for us, we have strategic locations where our missions are. So we've got nine missions across the region, um, covering sort of South Africa, um, Zimbabwe, um, in Kenya, Nigeria, where I am, my colleague next to me in Ghana, up in uh, Morocco, uh, Ethiopia and Egypt and also in Mauritius. And so through those missions and a couple of our European posts, we are actually able to cover all 54 um, of the African countries, which is incredible really when you think about it, 54 countries um, and that's spread of it. Sometimes it's challenging, like you know, the list of countries you, you kind of highlighted that I cover, you know, you have to kind of be representing all those countries whilst based in another country and getting around the region isn't easy. But in terms of, um, you know, our engagement, like I said, I think it's one that really has evolved and matured over time. And, you know, when the relationship started, you know, Australia was a founding member of the Commonwealth and we we're very much engaged with Africa from that Commonwealth perspective. You know, over time, you can look back in the sort of the 80s and 90s and it was very much a sort of, um, you know, Commonwealth relationship in the 90s going forward to the 2000s. I think it very much then matured into much more of an aid relationship. At that time, there was a recognition of the kind of significant poverty challenges in Africa. You had the Millennium Development Goals at that point in 2000. And in Australia really kind of came to the party and contributed significant sort of aid financing to the region. As time has progressed, you know, we, we finished the MDGs in 2015. We moved on to the SDGs. And I think we also recognised that time and our foreign policy um, sort of started to evolve a bit further. But really, you know, our immediate kind of neighbours, the Pacific, is where our aid financing should go and actually potentially less need in Africa where that whilst there is still a lot of need, you have the Europeans, you have the Americans who are sort of very active there. So for us now, our relationship and our engagement, I kind of really articulate now as being one of it's, it's bilaterally, we're not an aid kind of donor. But bilaterally, ours is a predominantly um, a relationship based on equality, about mutual commitment to multilateralism, and that recognition of the importance of the global trade for prosperity. So that economic relationship. We focus our aid program in the Pacific. The Europeans focus their aid program in Africa. Where we come together in terms of our aid engagement in Africa is very much on that multilateral perspective. So we contribute significant amounts of money, um, you know, to the UN organizations, to the World Bank. And it's through those core financing to those sort of multilateral organizations 
that Australia has its contribution to the aid um, part in Africa. I then believe, and it's very good, gives us the freedom as bilateral to engage on those economic relationships, to engage on the multilateral um, areas of, of relevance. And I think this week, for example, you could, if you look at the, you know, the World Health Assembly that just took place, and you know, Australia was very much behind the EU resolution on um, getting the um, COVID-19 uh, review. It didn't take long for the 54 African countries to come on board as well. And that's the sort of relationship I'm talking about, where we come together on those mutually kind of global perspectives and we can support each other. So it was really good to see you know, the African countries come behind the EU and ourselves and push for that agreement. So the relationship is very much more mature now. It's much more you know, economic partnership. It's about that mutual kind of commitment to multilateralism and about that global prosperity. And just to finish off, you know, from my own experience here in Nigeria, when I talk about um, the economic relationship, for us, there's a really strong relationship between Australia when it comes to mining and education sectors. So I kind of always articulate the relationship here in Nigeria as a, it's a modest one, but it's a focused one. And it really focuses on where our comparative advantage is. So we have a couple of mining companies who've been working in, um, in Nigeria since 2003, which actually came off the back of um, the Commonwealth meeting, which was held in Abuja at that time. And when the Prime Minister, um, John Howard, came out, he met the president at the time, Bassinger, and they agreed to kind of that, that was real strength that Australia had was in the mining sector and to work with Nigeria to help develop that sector. So that's been ongoing since 2003. And it's matured now that it's not just about capacity building support in the mining sector, but what you actually have now is the mining companies here with the potential to create you know, a significant number of jobs um, and economic benefits over a very long time here in Nigeria. So that's just a kind of, I guess, a broad overview of how I still see the, the relationship having so really matured over time. Right, and and you're obviously clearly optimistic about the the role that Australia can play. Yeah, yeah, I am. I am. I think, like I said, it has evolved. It, it, and I think what we see now is that because we are much more on the level playing field and it is an equal relationship, it's a much more mature one. So we don't have, like a lot of the, um, a lot of our, our partner countries and like-minded are still sort of stuck in that kind of donor-recipient um, relationship. And that's not what we have at all. Ours is much more mature. It's much more level. I mean, it's not as deep, I guess, as the Europeans potentially but what it is, it's much more honest in terms of what we bring to the, the table and what our kind of conversation is about. And that's where I think the relationship around that economic um, potential is much more kind of long term and sustainable. I mean, the mining sector, if it takes up, off, I mean, the mines that our Australians are involved in are, are mines which will last for 100 to 200 years. So the longevity of that relationship is much longer than an age relationship, which is short time bound kind of investments. So that is very much appreciated from our partners that we're working at that level. And I think that's the kind of opportunity we have to take forward. Does it help that we don't have a colonial past in Africa? Yeah, I think it does. <laughs> I think it does. I think the fact that when I, you know, when I talk to the partners, um, our partner countries, and that we are sort of both relatively, you know, we're all young democracies. We're kind of, we're newer, we're newer democracies. Um, we've got sort of similar histories in terms of, you know, emerging and forming new governments. Um, and so we are definitely seen much more like-minded in that sense. We don't have that baggage. We don't have that history. But what we do have is our own experience of our own economic reform programs in the 80s and 90s that we have to go through. So we can really share um, relevant experience and, and that is valued. Right. Australia feels a long way away from Africa. Um, <laughs> yes. And, and sometimes we get lots of, it's, it's mainly bad news about security issues and whatever. How does the security situation there in the region where you are feel on the ground? Yes, it is very serious. And when you're here, it's definitely not as bad as what it feels from when you hear about it externally. There's no doubt there are some serious um, security issues in terms of terrorism and violent extremism here in the northeast in Nigeria. Um, you have a lot of um, governments working together on that. And the Nigerian government has been working you know, very hard with the British Americans to kind of take back control of the, um, the area in the northeast where Boko Haram is very predominant. So those issues are very real and they're very significant and Australia very much works on the counterterrorism with our partners on that. But in terms of day-to-day -day living and operation, it isn't in your face the whole time. I mean, it's crime, as in a lot of countries, is an issue. Um, where we live in Abuja, it's very, um, it feels very safe. We obviously have very stringent security measures in place um, to look after all our staff, but it's very possible to move about and, and, and work. 
Security is an issue that comes up with the mining companies. I know that's something my colleagues in West Africa have really looked at because obviously you need that security for the safety of the mines and the mine workers, and that's something they are really working on. And we work very closely um, with the, the government of Nigeria on that. And I know my counterpart in Ghana is also you know, working with his counterpart governments. So they are issues, but they're not unsurmountable issues. And they're issues which are being managed. And they're issues, and I guess, again, it comes back to my earlier point, that we need to take to get forward together at the multilateral level. We need to work collectively as countries, not just Australia and, and Nigeria bilaterally, but at the multilateral level on that counterterrorism and taking forward those conversations and supporting these countries to to address those issues. So it's so it's a very real issue, but it does not it's not an issue that stops you from functioning on the ground. It's not an issue that stops businesses from working. It's just something that needs to be factored in, and it's something that we do need to kind of continue to work. Um, at that multilateral level. Are there ways that you would like to see the relationship between Australia and these countries become closer? What are the practical steps that we can take? Yeah, you know, I think um, I think you started a moment ago when you said about the physical distance, and that is the first thing that everyone says when you say Australia, Nigeria, they go, oh my God, it's just so far away. And it is, you know, there's no doubt that the distance is a hindrance. But what we found and what I was seeing is, you know, through, through some of our programs, so like we have the Australia Award Program, which, um, sponsors um, students from Africa to study in Australia. And what that's really helped to do is break down some of those people or build up those people-to-people linkages and break down those barriers and and misunderstanding of the the two countries and not knowing each other. And I think that's a large part of what we need to do going forward is building that understanding of um, the countries. And here we're very lucky that in Australia we have a very strong African diaspora um, community. Um, certainly in Melbourne, we have a very strong um, Nigerian guy called Fenalali who's been taking forward the African Musical Festival. So in Melbourne each year, there's a big African Musical Festival which covers the whole continent. It's a free festival. And the aim of that was very much to kind of try and promote the the African culture and to make it accessible to Australians. And I think it's, it's very much through those initiatives, through our diaspora, through the people-to-people links that will help to break down the kind of the barriers between the two countries and the better understanding of what the countries are and what they have to offer for each other. And that, that's very much a, a key focus for me going forward. Now, I presume it's unusual for a senior diplomat to have a, <laughs> a degree and a master's in science from the Imperial College of London. <laughs> I, I'm very lucky. It, Claire, what difference does that make to, you, to your approach, your attitudes? Does it, does it make any difference? Are you unusual among your peers? Um, it's good. I don't. I don't know whether I'm unusual. I think I was. I was very, very lucky. So I, I won a scholarship to go and study um, at Imperial College. So much like our African scholars, you know, win a scholarship through the, the Australia Africa Awards program. I was lucky to get a scholarship to go to Imperial College. Um, it's a phenomenal university, as you know, um, and it was a real privilege to go there. I mean, what it what it enabled me to do is to establish phenomenal networks. Um, across the region, particularly from, I guess, the UK side, but also very much into Africa side. It's definitely, you know, it's opened my eyes. I'm very lucky. I'm part of an alumni network that um, gives me access to that scientific information um, and networks, which is really good. I know also at the moment, I mean, the Imperial College study that came out on the COVID-19 pandemic, it's been very controversial here in Africa. it obviously resulted in a lot of lockdowns in the Western um, countries, and that's something that Western countries potentially, I mean, it could be argued, but Western countries could afford to go into that kind of lockdown economically, notwithstanding that most countries are going to have recessions and it, it's going to be very difficult, challenging times. But that approach, which is now being applied in Africa, is being hugely detrimental to the livelihoods of so many um, people in Africa. I mean, in Nigeria, already you have 100 million people living below the poverty line. So when they implemented that, you know, the Imperial College kind of finding of going to lockdown, that had a massive impact on people's livelihoods. It created significant hunger um, and job insecurity. It was, it was just, you know, the, the economic impact was just phenomenal. And so now, you know, African governments are sort of easing up a little bit, but there is that kind of the challenge of having gone down a path of full-on lockdown, recognising that it doesn't fit for purpose here in Africa, that you have people who just can't make ends meet day to day, and how you kind of backtrack from that. Um, so, it, so it's been interesting having that kind of knowledge from the Imperial College, seeing where it's gone, but that how it's not necessarily applicable in, in some of the countries we're working and trying to kind of um, navigate that. So it's interesting. Now, you mentioned COVID-19. Diplomats mm. around the world have been tweeting alerts and information to Australians uh, who may be in trouble. 
Have you mm. had many Australians there you've had to help who've been caught up with flight bans and lockdowns in the countries? Yeah, no, absolutely. And I think it's, I mean, on the one hand, it's been really interesting to see and just how many Australians are here. Um, and perhaps we didn't necessarily know the extent of it. So in the last eight weeks that we've been in lockdown here in Nigeria, so the last eight weeks, the international airports have closed. And that's when we've seen an uptick in, in people getting in touch with us. So we've had over... Gosh, we've had over 600 calls in the last eight weeks, over 250 emails, um, and I think it's around 150 people who have registered with us to say um, they're Australian citizens, they were in the region, so not just Nigeria, but the accredited countries that you mentioned as well, um, that they're here in the region, and then suddenly they've been called out and not being able to get home. Um, because of where we are in our location, Location, we're not going to be in a position to, you know, support a facilitated commercial flight as such. So we've been very, again, we're very much working with our like-minded partners to try and find seats for those Australians who are stranded here to get them out. So to date, we've been very lucky to get 33 Australian citizens home. So from the region, they've managed to get back to Australia, which is great. I think we still have another sort of about 40 people who are keen to leave. Um, at the moment, we still no certainty on when the airports are going to open. Um, so it, it is that getting very challenging for those who are left behind. But we are, you know, next week there's a, a flight going that the Dutch are organising and we've been working with them to get a couple of seats for the citizens on their plane. And we'll keep on doing that with um, all the other like-minded too, like the Brits are organising some more flights too. Um, so, yeah, it's it's been incredible um, just to see how many people are, are here in the region and to get to know them and establish those um, contacts and support them. It's been really good to do that. Is there, is there anything else, any other observations you'd make about your time there so far? Oh, so I feel I, so I'm pretty new. I've only I haven't quite been here yet a year yet, so I'm still in my early early tenure. I've been really impressed by the potential of of Nigeria and Africa more broadly. Um, and I know historically, um, it, like we said, and I started off the conversation where it's been a very much an aid relationship, and now it's matured sort of out of that. And that's what I see is the potential, um, and I'm excited about you know, what we can do here as a mission when hopefully the COVID-19 subsides and things get back to a bit more to normal. But I think it's that potential to really take forward the relationship, not, not in everything, like in a very focused way. So the mining education for us and potentially agriculture. But I see that the real potential in those kind of focused areas for establishing those um, longer relationships and potentially increasing the two-way trade. So I know it's not going to be easy. You know, the distance thing will always come up as an issue, but the potential is there. And I think that's what I've really seen is the dynamism here, um, the, the kind of interest by kind of Nigerians to kind of explore that relationship and increasingly from the Australian side too. So it's still kind of evolving, but the potential is really exciting. And we've been here a year. I'm looking forward to taking that further forward over the rest of my tenure. Claire, thank you very much for your time. Delightful to talk to you. No, it's a pleasure. Thank you very much for having me. Finally, I spoke with Santilla Chingayipe about the African diaspora in Australia and how different communities have been affected by COVID-19. We also discussed a major project that Santilla is working on that may shift our historical understanding of the Australia-Africa relationship. Santilla, thank you for joining us on the ASPI podcast today. Thanks for having me, Lisa. Uh, so for those that are listening that may not have had an opportunity to come across your work, I, I think it's worth highlighting that you're an award-winning journalist, having worked for SBS, and you've also written for the Saturday paper. You're a filmmaker with numerous credits, uh, and you were recognised last year um, during the UN session as one of the most influential people of African descent. And our paths have actually crossed as part of DFAT's advisory group on Australia-Africa relations. One of the things I wanted to chat to you about today was the African-Australian community and particularly the African diaspora here in Australia. And in fairness, I think that's a pretty big ask, um, as, as, as we've, we've both talked about before. You know, we're talking about a continent with more than 50 countries, uh, and we know that the Senate inquiry into Australia's trade and investment relationships with the continent in 2018 did actually acknowledge that Australia's Africa literacy tends to be pretty low in a lot of the discussions that we have. So I think it's an opportune time to have a bit of a, a chat about the relationship today. One of the points I wanted to start with, Santilla, was around some of the domestic debates and the characterisations that we see about the African diaspora here in Australia. One of the things that's been in the news in recent years has, has been references or, or fear-mongering um, around so-called African gang violence that we, we've heard used in the media and by politicians. 
this is a topic that you've written quite a bit on. And so I thought we might start by looking a little bit about what are some of the different issues that tend to drive this narrative and and why? Yeah, that's a really interesting question. For me, the narrative around, you know, so-called African gangs, I can sort of mark my own professional career from the start of it. So when I entered the newsroom, it was around the time when Kevin Andrews immigration minister, so this was around 2007, and I live in Melbourne and um, at the time, you know, there was this, there was there was essentially a similar debate to, to what we tend to hear pretty much most most years, which is around the fact that, you know, Sudanese, particularly Sudanese migrants are failing or struggling to integrate and we are seeing issues to do with crime, et cetera, et cetera. And around that time, um, a couple of things happened. The, the media sort of, well, some sections of the media sort of um, took on a more racialized angle in terms of how they were covering those stories. Um, I recall one package that one of the networks did and, you know, they had all this CCTV footage of African kids and they sort of started the broadcast with, um, you know, if you could put racism um, claims aside and just listen to this, when in fact there was really no evidence. It was just the fact that they had footage that showed, you know, kids that were black um, and therefore created a story around it. So the media sort of um, started to create its own racialized narrative about how it was covering um, young people that came from, um, you know, various African communities. But, you know, politicians also seized on it, you know, seized on the fact that for what they saw was a lack of integration by some of these communities, which in fairness was essentially incorrect because it was more a failure of policy in terms of, you know, settlement and, and being able to adequately settle um, new groups of migrant refugee communities. And given the successive budget cuts um, over the years that have seen a lack of investment in settlement services, it came as no surprise that some of these issues were cropping up. But that aside, that became a focus for um, some of these politicians. And it also started to influence policy. So we had situations where in that same year, um, Kevin Andrews put a halt to humanitarian entries from certain Horn of Africa communities. And there was a particular high profile incident where a young um, South Sudanese teenager, you know, he'd been sent by his mom to go to the shops to buy paint. And um, these two white men um, had been hearing the news and all of these stories around, you know, so-called African gang violence and and all of this. And, you know, they'd sort of confided to neighbours before this all came out in the trial, um, they'd confided to neighbours and, and people around them that they wanted to find, you know, um, a black person and kill, and kill them. And they'd sprayed um, in the squat they were living in the N-word on the walls and all that sort of stuff. And, you know, that day, that that unfortunate day, um, you know, this young man was uh, going to run an errand for his mum and he crossed the paths of these two men and he was beaten to death in, you know, what has been described as a racially motivated attack. So that was 2007. And since then, there's been a reincarnation of some sort of a similar kind of narrative. You know, if it's not the um, you know, we had the apex, the so-called apex gang at one point, you know, this mythical gang that was sort of running havoc, you know, um, in Melbourne. And then we had the, the so-called African crime gangs. And, you know, they seem to sort of carry the same sorts of characteristics. You know, it is it is lumping, um, you know, a very diverse continent into, into one group. Um, the implication is that in this context, African equals black when Anyone that, you know, knows anything about the African continent knows that it is a very diverse continent with people that uh, people of different races um, and ethnicities. Um, so that in itself is well, was something quite interesting because that became a dog whistle in many ways and the language that was being used to be able to, to sort of have a conversation without overtly saying things that people would explicitly call out as racist. So, yeah, so I've, I've, I've sort of been observing it and tracking a lot of these stories over the years and obviously the impact that they have. And it's not just on communities because I've spoken to family members and, 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 and people who are terrified to let their kids go out or um, I've spoken to children who feel like they're constantly racially profiled, particularly when they go into supermarkets and public spaces. But also there is that um, impact on policy, you know, whether it was um, the Halton on the humanitarian entry program to, in recent years, you know, moves to deport, you know, minors based on, on these fears, these fears that aren't steeped in any, in any fact um, at all. And even the data, um, when you look at it in terms of 
the overrepresentation. Um, it's, it's a very, very small percentage, but I think it is because of the visibility of a lot of these young people that this we seize on this, you know, and 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 and, and you know, I work in the anti-racism space, and and obviously, racism was something that was born out of the. Um, economic system of the transatlantic slave trade. So even thinking about it in the context of how some of these narratives are formed, you know, tracking that history of slavery, this idea that blackness equals violence, and even though it's not based on any truth or fact or anything like that, continues to perpetuate itself. It continues to sort of find its way into contemporary debates around migration and why this perception of, you know, why some groups fit in and others don't, when really the issue comes down to a failure in policy. It's a, it's an important point that you raise, particularly at the moment around some of the discussions that are taking place with, with COVID-19. We've, on the one hand, we've seen, I guess, uh, some of the better parts of humanity in the response to this at the moment, but we've also seen some of the worst when it comes to racism and xenophobia against different communities. With that in mind, what impact has COVID-19 had on, on different parts of the African diaspora, both, both here in Australia and, and abroad, in your view? Um, I think here in Australia, I think we have a large community of international students from uh, various parts of the continent. And like many international students, they have been impacted by this because they're on visas. And so there's the precariousness that comes with that. Some of the you know students that I've spoken to are frontline workers, you know, so they work in either aged care homes or nursing, and you know, so they they also read that in that added risk category of uh, contracting this disease, and so there are all these sorts of issues that are, that are cropping up, and also you know if you add data that's been coming out of the UK particularly, because in Australia we don't collect racial data, but in the UK and in the US they do. Um, and what's been very interesting from the health aspect in terms of COVID-19 is studies are now finding a link between race and the rate of infection. And, he said, and I think one of the reports from the UK in the last couple of weeks has essentially said that black people or, or and, and people from the subcontinent are four times more likely to get COVID-19 than people from other communities. So you're disproportionately affected in that aspect. So here you have people on visas who some are frontline workers and also happen to be in that high-risk group um, for COVID-19. So I think there is a lot of worry amongst people in some of these communities because because of those sorts of factors kind of coalescing. Um, but also, you know, there have been examples of even with very little you know, some some communities are coming together to support those on visas, support those that can't put food on the table at this time, and you know, lots of volunteering and donating and cooking meals and um, and sharing of that within communities and those that are able to um, also sending um, money and resources back to their family members on the continent to help support them during this um, during this difficult time. You've noted some really important points there across the fact that the community is so diverse. And I think sometimes we we forget that when we consider the impact that different issues and different challenges and particularly this pandemic is having on the African Australia diaspora. One point I wanted to finish on, Santilla, was around a project that you're working on at the moment that I guess is trying to uncover a little bit more about this story over the, the last few centuries uh, and bring it to light so that we have a better understanding about some of the challenges in terms of the broader Australia-Africa relationship. I was wondering if you could tell us a little bit about a book that you're working on at the moment. Yeah. So we touched on earlier, obviously, the conversations around African-Australian communities, particularly the negative um, narratives that have emerged um, over the last decade or so. And I started to grow increasingly frustrated because I thought, you know, how many times can you keep repeating yourself before people begin to see just how how damaging these narratives are on communities, on people's sense of belonging and identity, and also on long-term Australia's relationship with uh, various African countries. And, I, and I'd, you know, done a story um, many, many years ago when I still worked at SBS about a, a, a South African um, Khoisan um, a resistance fighter, really, who was who was transported here as a convict um, in the mid-19th century by the British because of his resistance to colonialism. And I'd also heard stories about, you know, African people of African descent on the First Fleet. And I was very curious and I sort of thought, okay, right, um, if I can find evidence that shows even 
a handful of these people existed from the beginning of what we what we what we call modern Australia, then certainly, hopefully, that would that would challenge these you know racialized narratives that that that, that seem to um, argue that uh, people of African descent uh, aren't integrating. You know, because you can't really argue with that if people have been here since the beginning of European settlement. And so um, I was fortunate enough to get a State Library uh, fellowship uh, a couple of years ago that allowed me time to research some of these stories. And like I said, I was expecting to just have evidence of a handful of these people. But what I ended up finding was um, that there were hundreds of convicts of African descent that were transported to the Australia penal colonies um, from 1788 up until the mid-19th century. And the book is essentially documenting the stories of all of these men and women and how they got here and under what circumstances. And really, I hope that it challenges this idea of who is and who isn't Australian, who, you know, who qualifies in whatever definition um, we've put in place. But also, I think, adds more evidence to the argument that, you know, we know that because of our Indigenous um, history, that Australia has always been multicultural. Um, but what this hopefully adds to that debate is also the sense of even from 1788, modern Australia has always been multicultural. You know, we had a brief period where we had a racist white Australia policy um, that barred um, migration of people from non-European backgrounds. But prior to that, you know, people came from pretty much all parts of the world. And um, that has been our story. You know, modern Australia's story is one of migration and migration of people from all corners of this world. And I think it's one that is worth remembering whenever we have debates around migration, which sometimes does fear and, 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 and prey on the fear and panic that people might have and the prejudices that people might have, um, which is incredibly unfair because when you look through the history books, you know, there have been periods where we have accepted and been open and welcoming of people from different backgrounds and that when people make mistakes, which happens in any community, regardless of whether or not they're they're African or Asian or Middle Eastern or European, that the individual should be judged based on whatever mistake that they make, but not 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 entire communities, you know. And and that's what I hope shifts um, as a result of having this book out there and you know you can't really argue with facts which is which is what I like you know it's all it's all there in the archives and um all I'm doing is just um you know extracting it and 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 putting and packaging in a way that um is easily accessible but other than that I'm 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 not making anything up <laughs> um and so hopefully the facts you know it can 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 help inform future debates around around migration. Look, I, I know I'm certainly looking forward to, to to reading the book when when the project is done. I have no doubt that you're looking forward to having the the project done, as it sounds like a, a huge amount of work, but such an important uh, issue to be focused on, and I think one that talks to how we approach some of these issues moving forward, both as a community but also for for government and policymakers. So on that note, um, Santilla, I wanted to to thank you for for joining us on the podcast this morning. Thanks for having me, Lisa. That's all for today's Africa Day special. Thank you for listening, and we wish those of you celebrating a happy Africa Day. We would love to hear your thoughts on the episode, so please tweet us at Aspie underscore org. We will be back with another episode next week.